The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. I grew up just outside of the city of Chicago, and I moved to Boston in the year 2000. I still live there. And I moved to Boston to attend music college and get a degree in hand drumming, of all things. Anyone else here that has a hand drumming degree? Anyone? Okay, just me. I was following this dream that I had at the time of being a touring musician. I wanted to play with some famous band traveling the world in a different city every night of the week, playing to crowds of thousands. I remember particularly the, the feeling of my last semester of school as I was looking ahead to graduation and trying to imagine the possibilities for a musician's life ahead of me. And it was in that last semester that one morning I happened to stumble into a classroom where two of my teachers were having a conversation together. One of them was talking about his schedule. He had just come back from a two-week concert tour of Morocco, playing with some incredible Middle Eastern band. And he was just that afternoon heading off on a four-week tour of Europe with a group called Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, you've heard of them? Yeah, me too. I remember that he pointed to this, his suitcase, which was sitting open in the corner of the classroom. And I remember looking at that suitcase and maybe for the first time in my life being jealous of the luggage that had got to go on this trip with him. This guy was living the dream. And I remember I kind of, well, I kind of interrupted their conversation to say, are you so excited, so freaking excited that you can't even stand it? And I said it just like that with no chill. And I remember that he kind of looked at the floor before looking back at me, and he shook his head a bit, and he said, you know, man, mostly I just want to go home and see my kid. Now, I'll be honest with you, in that moment, I, I didn't say it, but what I thought was, surely your kid is not as cool as Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> but I knew enough to keep my mouth shut and I was embarrassed by how tone-deaf I'd been to this conversation that they were really having together. I looked back at that suitcase, and it had just a minute ago been the ultimate symbol of success, but it suddenly carried a very different weight. Now this musician, this hand drummer, he knew the value of music as well as anyone I have ever met. He deeply understood music's ability to transform hearts and bring people together and make the world a better place. But still, he struggled to balance those values with the values of his family and his home life and community. My unfolding sense of true success, of a life well-lived, is that it is, first of all, a journey and not a destination that we can arrive at and that it is, second, an increasing embrace of one's values, even in the face of increasing complexity. This reminds me of a poem by Naomi Shahab Nye called Famous. She says, the boot is famous to the earth, more famous than the dress shoe, which is only famous to floors. 
I want to be famous, she says, in the way that a pulley is famous or a buttonhole, not because it ever did anything spectacular, but because it never forgot what it could do. Remembering what we can do, even when we are overwhelmed and weighed down by the list of all that must be done in our days, all that must be done in this world, remembering what we can do is the work of we, the future ancestors. Rabbi Tarfon spoke of this in his own tradition in the first century AD when he said, it is not your responsibility to finish the work of perfecting this world, but you are not free to desist from it either. My hope for my days and for yours, dear ones, is that we can attend to the complexity of our times with our best selves. And as Adrian Marie Brown says, that we can root ourselves in communities doing our best to honor our ancestors and future generations to come. I hope we can set aside the stories we've been told or made up along the way about what success is supposed to look like. Set aside the stories we've been told about who we are or who we're supposed to be or what our gender is supposed to mean, or what kind of work has value enough, or whether systems of injustice are tolerable just because they are normal. Growing up at any age is about growing into our values, about adapting to difficult times with grace and courage and remembering what we can do amidst all that must be done. Now, when I think of redefining success, And when I think of our movement ancestors who lived deeply into the complexity of their own times, who faced the crises of their day, I sometimes remember this story about our Unitarian ancestor, William Ellery Channing. Channing was a preacher in Boston in the mid-1800s. He's remembered as one of the great founders of Unitarianism. He was a brilliant preacher and a powerful voice for justice and particularly for abolition in his own time. But we know that success is more about the journey than the destination. And that was even true for our friend Channing, because while he always agreed with the goals of the abolitionists, he wasn't always so vocal about it. You see, he agreed with the work of abolition, but he didn't love some of the personalities in the movement. Can you relate? He didn't love some of the politics of the organizations, and he particularly didn't like some of the messaging. He thought the speeches they made and the way they spoke about their work, it was just too passionate. It was too emotional, not rational enough. And it reminded him too much of the itinerant revivalists that were sweeping the country at the time. Now, you should know the only thing consistent in my adult life is my job as an itinerant revivalist, but that's okay. I don't take his comments personally. So one night at an anti-slavery forum, all night, Channing is going on and on criticizing the movement. And Samuel May, a more active abolitionist leader, has been listening until he can't take it anymore. And eventually he interrupts and he says, Dr. Channing, I am tired of your complaints. It is not our fault that those who might have conducted this great reform so much more prudently than we can have left us to manage as we may. It's not our fault that those who might have pleaded for the enslaved so much more wisely and so much more eloquently than we can have been silent. We are not to blame, sir, that you have not spoken. 
And now, well, now that inferior men have begun to speak and begun to act against what you acknowledge to be an awful system, well, it is not becoming of you to complain of us that we do it in an inferior style. This is what the kids would call a sick burn. (laughs) And it was so sick, in fact, that Channing was unable to answer the rebuke until eventually he said, Brother May, I have been silent too long. Now, I love that the story depicts the very moment Channing took up the work of a life that would resonate with his ancestors and with his future descendants, us. The moment he took up the work of attending to the crises of his time, not to finish it, but neither to desist from it. I love this story because I've so often been in Samuel May's place. So many times I've ended up fighting so-called allies who say they share my values, but they would rather critique the work from afar than get scuffed up in the fray of making real change themselves. And it's exhausting. And I love this story because I've also just as often been in Channing's place. Too many times I've blamed other people's failures for my own silence, my own inaction. Too many times I've clung to some abstract sense of perfection or moral purity rather than getting scuffed up in the fray of complexity myself. It's true that if you say you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have already taken sides with the powerful. And it is also true that if you have taken sides with love, but you've taken sides quietly, without words or action, you have in fact remained neutral. And it can feel easy to look back at history's great debates, slavery, pro-slavery, or abolition, look back with the clarity of hindsight that we have today. But we should remember that the 13th Amendment that eventually did outlaw slavery in this country left an exception for those found guilty of a crime. And then, suspiciously, our country began finding more people guilty of crimes than just about any other in the world. So that in 2022, the ACLU reports, forced labor in U.S. prisons generated $11 billion in goods, while paying out an average of 13 to 52 cents per hour. Now, as Unitarian Universalists, our denomination, our association of congregations have come together, and we have covenanted to abolish this prison system as we know it. We've covenanted to work together and replace it with something wholly new, because we know that if putting large numbers of people in cages made us safer, we would live in the safest country in the world, but we do not. And we know that if increased funding for police budgets made our country safer, we would live in the safest country in the world. But we don't. The work of abolition, though, continues to be complicated. But that doesn't mean we should be silent. The people doing the work continue to be complicated. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't find a way forward and work together to come to the table and imagine something new. I wonder if Channing had maybe missed that day in school. Maybe he missed that day when Mrs. Nelson explained that even when we have hundreds of questions about how to go about our days, our work together, and our days, they still add up to something. Our children will someday tell similar stories of us. 
I'm sure they will speak of the 2020s, a time when a pandemic arrived and turned everything upside down, a time when climate chaos arrived in our cities and neighborhoods with devastation, a time when we put our neighbors in cages by the millions. Surely they will speak of how premeditated wealth inequality made every crisis of our time more difficult to address. But I hope they will have other stories to tell, stories of communities and congregations like this one that came together even when the people were complicated and even when the path was unclear. I hope they will tell the stories of Black Lives Matter and Me Too and the Sunrise Movement, the people that mobilized thousands and changed the conversation and changed how the story ends. I hope they will tell of the communities that came together to do what we could do, even when we felt overwhelmed by all that must be done. Writer and atheist prophet Ta-Nehisi Coates spoke of this. In a letter to his son, he said, history is not solely in our hands, but still you are called to struggle, not because it assures you victory, but because it's what assures you an honorable and sane life. Now, there was a time that I thought success was traveling the world with some famous band. And, well, just between you and me, if Paul Simon called me up this afternoon, I'd be on the next plane out of here. But I know it's more complicated than that now. Now I think of success as those who stay at the table and stay in community even when it's hard. I think of it as the people who choose restorative justice or other alternatives to the prison system when harm has been done. I think of success as finding a way to support your family even when housing costs are too high and the minimum wage is too low. And I think of it as finding small ways to make this world better, even when we have more questions about it than answers. Honorable struggle means taking up the work that is ours to do, not to finish it, but neither to desist from it. And so, beloveds, may we live deeply into the journey we will not regret. May we together aspire to the fame of the boots and the buttonhole, never forgetting what we can do. May we love each other deeply, building up the messy and holy and beautiful communities that make the world better and make this life worth celebrating. May it be so, and may we make it so together. Amen. Well, today's worship is about that new understanding of success that Adrienne Marie Brown offers us. Let us measure success, she says, by how many of us can say I'm living a life I don't regret. She said, goes on to say that I'm also attending to the crises of my time and that I am rooted in communities doing our best to honor our ancestors and future generations to come. And she goes on to say, how can we, the future ancestors, align ourselves with the most resilient practices of our species? I love that question that asks of us, the future ancestors, how we're going to live our lives. And I think part of that definition means that we look around at the world we find and don't necessarily accept that thing, the way things are or the way things have to be. And to me, that's part of this new understanding of success. And with that in mind, I have just the story for you. Now, Desmond the mouse lived in the most beautiful meadow in all the land. 
Every morning, Desmond would wake with the sunrise and spend the whole day long playing in that meadow. And every night, he would go to sleep right in the middle of that meadow under the beautiful starry sky above. One night, though, Desmond awoke to find that it was still dark out. So he tried to roll over and get more comfortable and go back to sleep, but something wasn't right. He could hardly move, and his tail, oh, his tail was throbbing with pain. Reaching behind him, he felt that there was some sort of, well, well, it felt like some sort of huge boulder had somehow fallen just on his tail in the middle of the meadow. So he tried pushing with all of his strength to push this giant boulder away. And when that didn't work, he tried tugging on his tail, tugging to get loose with all of his might. And he tried pushing and tugging and tugging and pushing over and over again until eventually he was out of breath and had just about given up. But just then, he saw an animal pass by through the meadow. It was a tall giraffe. And so he called out, Oh, giraffe, it seems that some sort of boulder has fallen just on my tail in the middle of the meadow. If you could use your powerful legs to nudge it, well, even just a few inches in the other direction, I could get free. Well, the giraffe laughed at Desmond the way giraffes do. <laughs> you silly mouse, he said. That's no boulder that's fallen on your tail in the middle of the meadow. That is an elephant that's fallen asleep on your tail in the middle of the meadow. Well, good news, thought Desmond. I mean, in that case, if you could just gently wake the elephant and ask him to roll over even just a few inches in the other direction, I could get free. I don't know about that, said the giraffe. I mean, surely you must know what they say about letting sleeping elephants lie. <laughs> I, I find it's best not to get involved in other animals' business. I find it's best to remain neutral in times like these. Well, Desmond sighed. I do not appreciate your neutrality. The giraffe wandered away, and Desmond tried shouting as loud as he could to wake the giant elephant. But those giant elephant ears at the way other end of that giant elephant body, they were just too far away. And Desmond's little mouse voice, it was just too quiet. So when that didn't work, he tried pushing again with all of his strength. And then he tried tugging with all of his might. And he tried shouting and pushing and tugging and tugging and pushing and shouting over and over and over again. So he had just about given up when he saw another animal pass by through the meadow. This time it was a gazelle. And so he called out, Oh gazelle, it seems that an elephant has fallen asleep just on my tail in the middle of the meadow. If you could just gently wake him up and ask him to roll over even just a few inches in the other direction, I could get free. I don't know about that, said the gazelle. I mean, surely you know what they say about letting sleeping elephants lie. I find it's best not to get involved in other animals' business. I find it's best to remain neutral in times like these. The gazelle wandered off, and Desmond said almost to himself this time, I do not appreciate your neutrality. One last time, Desmond tried shouting with all of his little mouse voice, and he tried pushing with all of his mouse strength and tugging with all of his little mouse might, and he tried shouting and pushing and tugging and tugging and pushing and shouting over and over again till he had just about given up for the last time when he saw another animal pass by through the grass. 
This time it was another mouse, and when he called out, that mouse ran right over and introduced himself. He said, my name is Nelson. What seems to be the problem? Well, no sooner had Desmond explained the situation than Nelson ran all the way to the other end of that giant elephant body, and he shouted up to those giant elephant ears at the top of that giant elephant head. He said, excuse me! It seems you've fallen asleep on my friend's tail in the middle of the meadow. If you could roll over just a few inches in the other direction, he could go free. Well, the elephant heard Nelson's little mouse voice way down on the ground. But those big elephant ears at the other side of that big elephant head, they were just too far away. And his little mouse voice, it was just a bit too quiet. And you know, between you and me, I think that elephant was just a bit too comfortable. He didn't budge. So Nelson thought for a moment before he ran back to Desmond and he said, you know, I think I might have an idea. Stay right here, don't move. And he ran off, leaving a confused look on Desmond's face. And just when Desmond was starting to get worried again, he saw Nelson emerge back through the grass. But this time he wasn't alone. He had found three other mouse friends. And each of them, they had each done their job. They had each found another three mouse friends. And the whole group of them ran all the way to the other end of that giant elephant body. And one mouse climbed up on the shoulders of another. And another mouse climbed up on her shoulders. And one by one, they made a whole mouse ladder all the way up the back of that giant elephant head. Until at last, Nelson climbed up the shoulders of his friends one by one carefully till he stood right at the opening of that giant elephant an ear. And he shouted with all of his voice, excuse me. It seems you've fallen asleep on my friend's tail in the middle of the meadow. Roll over just a few inches so he can go free. Well, this time, this time his voice was just too loud and just too close to ignore. And so the elephant said, mm. but then he rolled over just a few inches in the other direction. Nelson and his friends climbed back down to the ground carefully, and they met up with Desmond, and the whole group of them spent the rest of that day playing and celebrating together in the meadow. Now, Archbishop Desmond Tutu said that if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you've already taken sides. You've taken sides with the powerful and with the oppressor. And he said that if an elephant is standing on the tail of a mouse, the mouse will never appreciate your neutrality. Archbishop Tutu believed in a God who he said took sides, a God who took sides with the orphan and the widow and the oppressed everywhere. And as Unitarian Universalists, we may or may not share a belief in that same God, but we have covenanted to build a world of justice and equity and compassion. And that means imagining a world very different painfully different from the one we see around us today. So it means that we come together in communities and congregations like this one to do together what we couldn't do alone and to take sides for justice, to take sides for equity and compassion. And it means that we come together in community to side with love. May it be so, and may we make it so. Amen.